You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorist and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm honoured to be joined by Sir Ivor Roberts, a former British diplomat and a member of the advisory board of the Counter-Extremism Project. Sir Ivor Roberts is a former British ambassador to Yugoslavia, Ireland, Italy and former head of counterterrorism in the FCO. Throughout his long career in the British diplomatic service, he dealt with various forms of terrorism, including Hezbollah, Palestinian terrorists, the Lockerbie bombing and IRA terrorism. After his diplomatic career, through his involvement in the counter-extremism project, Survivor continues to engage in the fight against extremism and terrorism. As part of his activities with CEP, he launched a report on the link between extremist groups and illicit trade in Eastern Africa. The report reveals how illicit trade in East Africa finances extremism, funds criminal enterprises and breeds corruption, while also threatening economic and social structures and leaching vital resources. Sir Ivor, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us on this podcast. Thank you very much, Lucinda. To start off, Ivor, I would suggest that you perhaps tell us about this report that you have drafted. What are some of the key observations that you've made in the report? Sure. Well, it's a, as you've said, it's a report about illicit trade. We're looking at extremism, organized crime, and corruption in the East African region, and the way in which illicit trade is the common denominator, the common thread uh, between these threats, the thing which draws all these groups to the region. And the reason why illicit trade is the common thread is, is it's partly because it's attractive, it's lucrative, it's predictable um, in terms of finance compared to, say, kidnapping or ransom, uh, and it's low risk uh, as compared to theft. Why does it matter? Well, illicit trade accounts for nearly 3% of global GDP, which is roughly 2.2 trillion American dollars. And in, to take one country as an example, in Kenya, it's estimated that um, 40% of consumer products are illicit. And this is, of course, a fantastic drain on a country which needs to um, have a solid tax base instead of a very narrow tax base. And to and given the fact that it has a very young population, it needs to uh, provide jobs, uh, to finance um, support for uh, infrastructure projects, rather than um, unemployed young men in particular being drawn into illegal activities and extremist groups. So you certainly you would certainly imagine, given the valuable revenues which are being missed out on by the Kenyan government and by uh, by governments in the region and indeed internationally, that there is a big incentive for 
policymakers and sovereign states to try to really get to grips with this problem and uh, and uh, start to clean it up and ensure that those revenues arrive where they should be in in uh, national uh, uh, coffers rather than um, lining the pockets of organized crime gangs and terrorist organizations. Yes, you're absolutely right. But of course, there are major issues. Unless the countries of the region cooperate, work closely together, this isn't going to work. For instance, if you enforce strict measures at the international borders of one country, but then through, say, the East African community, allow goods to drain through into other parts of the international community, it simply isn't going to work. You've got to have enforceable border measures and internal surveillance, factory inspections, things like that, to make sure that what is produced is produced in an in illicit way and taxed accordingly. The, there is an extraordinary leaching of, of funds as a result of illicit trade, which does enormous damage to, uh, to an already fragile economy. Mm-hmm. I mean, East Africa has been threatened by what I describe as a kind of really dense network of extremist and criminal groups. Uh, and of course, there is a, a real problem with corruption. Um, so you've got this sort of crescent of extremist groups operating on the region's periphery. And um, and it's in illicit trade, which is the lifeblood, which, which sustains them. You've got just some examples. You've got um, Al-Shabaab and ISIS to the north in Somalia. Somalia has been having a 30-year civil war and is very much a failed or fragile state, to the host of militias groups which are undermining stability in Central Africa. You've got the Lord's Resistance Army. And then to the south, you've got uh, Al-Sunnah wal-Jamaa, which is an ISIS-linked insurgency, and in three years has caused huge damage in northern Mozambique. And if you've read the newspapers recently, you might have seen recent reports of, of children being beheaded by this group, uh, which, as I say, is is linked to ISIS. And uh, I think the reality is, and the urgency of this report, is that these extremist threats are, in many cases, getting worse, not better. It's not helped by the fact that um, Washington, in the dying days of the Trump administration, um, pulled its ground forces out of Somalia, which is particularly vulnerable. And we don't yet know whether President Biden will be interested in in reversing that order. Obviously, it would be very important if he did so. And there was one encouraging sign that I read in a report yesterday, I think it was, that the Biden administration was sending uh, special forces to train some of the Mozambican um, security forces to try and deal with this horrific and appalling Islamist group who go around decapitating children. It's truly horrific. I mean, one observation perhaps might be that, you know, some of these same organizations, um, for example, ISIS, are obviously present and operating in other in other parts of the world. Uh, and obviously there are many other terrorist and extremist organizations that are engaged in similar activity internationally. What is it about East Africa, you know, that that's so 
relevant um, in terms of the international challenges that we face around illicit trade and the financing of terrorist groups. Do you think East Africa is sort of central to to a wider uh, solution to this problem? I think it is. I think I think it's a real vulnerable point in um, international efforts to control extremism. It has very long coastlines. Somalia has the longest coastline in the whole of Africa, for instance. And we know about what's happened with piracy off the coasts of Somalia. It's pivotal position, uh, close to, relatively close, obviously, to the Indian subcontinent, means that it's seen as a, a an access point for the Asian market for wildlife, uh, illegal wildlife exports. Um, the illegal wildlife trade is another very worrying development. And the, the demand for that comes from the East, comes from China, comes from Vietnam in terms of ivory, in terms of pangolin, in terms of other animals which are in demand in those countries and which can cause absolute devastation. It wasn't very long ago that there were 10 million African elephants. They're now down to half a million. And this is despite um, measures by international players from America to the United Kingdom to China itself to try and put a stop to the ivory trade. There's still thousands of 20,000, it's estimated, African elephants being murdered every, being killed every year. And so this has become a real threat to biodiversity on the planet. And beyond that, and it's very relevant in the context of um, COVID-19, that I think people estimate that 60% of uh, likely emerging infectious diseases are going to be zoonomic, i.e. coming from animals. And therefore, this international trade in exotic animals is a hugely dangerous development and, or not development, a, a fact which needs to be suppressed at all costs. That is a, a fascinating angle to this, which I, I suppose is uh, very much to the forefront in people's minds now in a way that it would never have been previously, uh, obviously due to COVID-19. Can I, can I just make one other point about the geographical position of, of East Africa? It wouldn't occur to most people, and it didn't occur to me until I did the research into this report, that um, Latin American drug barons see East Africa as a useful way into the European market because uh, you know a flight coming in from Kenya doesn't immediately arouse danger signals in Paris or London in the same way that an international flight from Colombia will do. So the drug cartels in Latin America are increasingly (coughs) looking for new avenues which will be more fruitful in getting their product to the European market. That's a really important point. And your report obviously focuses on the role of of extremists and terrorist organizations, but also that nexus with organized crime. The illicit trade that you have examined in great detail is hugely relevant to the financing of extremist and terrorist organizations. Also, you know, creates this link with organized crime, which is becoming more and more prolific. What do you think that means in terms of the reach and the growth of that relationship between organized crime, between criminal gangs from South America and elsewhere, and these extremist organizations? 
Well, they, they all drink from the same trough, as it were. They find the funding um, by illicit activities for whatever they're up to. In the case of crime syndicates, it's just straight cash. In the case of extremist groups, uh, they're looking to carry out their political agenda. Um, illicit trade is the thing that binds them all together. You've talked about organized crime, and there's been an emergence of urban gangs in places like um, in Kenya. Um, this has really emerged in the last 20 years. And one of the worrying developments is the way that people have in these um, gangs have gained increasing access to illicit arms and become increasingly independent. And there we've seen this not just in Kenya, but in Tanzania and Uganda. Uh, and then you've got the Asian crime syndicates who, as I mentioned, are you know, interested in importing illegal wildlife, but also minerals and gemstones from the area, which um, in which the area is particularly rich. There's rubies, a very important gemstone in the area. And um, you know, they also, the Asian gangs are also in the business of exporting counterfeit pharmaceuticals, um, as well as the illegal narcotics. So, uh, and as I've said, you know, the South American cartels see the um, region as a, a valuable and well-placed staging post uh, en route to high-value markets in, in Europe. So there's obviously quite a degree of synergy then between these different types of organizations and how they support each other in a sense. Um, yes, yes. You mentioned the presence of some of these organizations at sea. Obviously, Somalia and Kenya along the coastline have been synonymous with, with um, some of the illegal activity of these groups. How do organizations like Al-Shabaab take advantage of that coastline? And, you know, what are the, the hallmarks of this maritime presence in the region? Well, they, of course, don't just rely on the coastline. They operate to trade to their advantage, but they're also, of course, interested in building up territory where they can. They've been pushed back in various parts of Somalia and then fight back again. And the same is true in, in Kenya. They've relatively recently carried out assaults on Kenyan military bases. They are determined, I think, to exploit all means. The illicit trade that I've been talking about between, say, the um, Asia and the East African region gives them funding, which they're then able to use for their nefarious purposes inside inside Somalia, inside Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, some governments in the region certainly seem to be either more mobilized or more successful uh, in their pushback against this type of illegal activity. I think the Kenyan government, it's probably fair to say, has been perhaps more proactive than other administrations in the region. What have you seen through your research in uh, in working on this report? Which governments have sort of demonstrated a better understanding or uh, a better approach to um, pushing back against this illicit trade? Well, Kenya is very much um, the uh, um, in the premiership and all this. They've made some real progress. Their Coast Guard service has done some excellent interceptory work. 
they have made significant uh, seizures of um, small arms and light weapons, although it's fair to say that most of their seizures have been made within its borders. So that's in domestically, as it were, not at its international borders. And I think this is a, a weakness, which is something we try to look at in the report, international measures to combat um, the international trade in small arms and, and light weapons. That doesn't sufficiently focus on um, international measures rather than what's happening inside countries. The illicit tobacco is another example of Kenya's very significant strides. They um, introduced an electronic cargo tracking system, which has uh, led them to recuperate some 50 million US dollars in unpaid taxes. And they've introduced uh, an excisable goods management system for both tobacco and alcohol products. So they are able to undertake a much more comprehensive monitoring these measures, these um, goods management systems have led to a, an, an almost incredible 5,000% rise in tax revenue in six months for the last half of 2014. And um, they, the Kenyan Revenue Authorities have seized amounts to sometimes 20 million cigarettes. But um, while there's real progress there, what we repeatedly um, see and what we try to illuminate in this report is that when an individual country in the region moves on its own to address the category of illicit trade, traffickers can all too easily restructure their supply chains to move to a softer target. Well, to take the example of tobacco again, all, all the evidence now suggests that the, the bulk of the illicit tobacco on the Kenyan market is either being produced in Uganda or, or being exported to Uganda from Kenya and then smuggled across the border into Kenya again. So you've got a real problem with um, what I'd say is the, the, the weakest link in the, in the region through which what progress has been made can sometimes be, be reversed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think if you don't get the East African governments to act in concert with each other, you're going to fail. You know, you can't win by playing whack-a-mole with illicit traffickers. Mm -hmm. and, and I've mentioned the sort of lost revenue question, but the, there's three things here. One is the loss of revenue to the state from um, illicit trade like this. And the other is it provides, as we've talked about already, actually providing funding for extremists and, um, uh, and criminal groups. And um, then also, in the case of tobacco or indeed alcohol, which you often use for social measures to um, hike the price so that it um, acts as a deterrent to excessive consumption. And if you have very low-priced tobacco products or low-priced alcohol, it actually undermines government policies in terms of controlling, encouraging these people to give up smoking or reduce the amount of alcohol they consume. So there's a threefold element in that. That makes uh, a lot of sense and obviously um, has the potential to undermine public health policy and, and much more in these countries. You mentioned very clearly the important role of technology in actually eliminating some of this illegal activity. And uh, Kenya obviously is a good example of where electronic 
cargo systems and tracking systems have been introduced very effectively. I presume the the on the flip side of that, you also see these gangs, terrorist organizations, uh, those involved in illegal illicit trade manipulating technology and the cyber sphere to deepen their links, to expand their reach. Have you seen much of that in your research? Yes, I think we have. I mean, one of the things that we've noticed is that the, a lot of the illicit trade is actually not carried out by small traders. They, they tend to be, in these days, pushed out by the big players, by big criminal groups, by the extremist groups who obviously have no time for small traders and will threaten and intimidate them and the and transnational crime syndicates and they've become much more sophisticated uh, in terms of using digital technology to evade controls and this isn't just the case in east africa but it's it's found elsewhere as well and unless you've got significant technology at your disposal, the poor security that you're going to see is going to mean that illegal imports, sometimes ordered on the internet, can arrive in significant quantities from um, countries like the um, UAE, from Dubai, China, Turkey, India, and, and even Singapore. And they can be coming into the East African markets with counterfeit products, all, all simply ordered on the open internet. Although sometimes also there's a, a use of the dark web rather than the surface web. And Asian crime syndicates are very sophisticated and used to operate in the East African region. Are there cyber tools for laundering money as well? Is that a factor? They are. We haven't gone into that in huge detail. That's rather beyond the scope of the report. But certainly, I think we've seen cyber tools for laundering money used in cryptocurrencies. We've seen that right across the world, not just in, in the region. Looking at attempts to tackle illicit economies and the whole ecosystem around these illicit economies, we've seen it in, in South America and Central America in particular with drug cartels. You know, there's always a, a heavy reliance and influence and an ecosystem of communities that are involved or, you know, sucked into, into the, the supply chain, if you like. You know, and disrupting that can be a real challenge for governments and for, for law enforcement and so on. Do you see those ecosystems in East Africa as well? And, you know, do you think there are risks to disrupting it in terms of the, the sort of the political, economic security systems that are in place? Uh, is that a concern or is it less so than perhaps in South America and other regions? I would say it was less so than in the case of um, South America. It, it's obviously important, but it's not it's not the key factor in, in the development of uh, illicit trade in that area. Mm -hmm. And just a, a question about the timing of this report. I mean, from your perspective, what makes this piece of research timely and who do you think it needs to target or who needs to become more aware of this work? Um, yeah, well, it's timely, I think, for the reasons I've set out in terms of the expansion of extremist activity, which is getting worse. And Mozambique is one thing I 
I simply mentioned uh, as a small example. But in the uh, post-pandemic world, which I hope we're coming to, there's an opportunity to kind of reset the economies of the um, region to make a fresh start and dealing with the problems caused by the pandemic with vast uh, damage done to the economy, unemployment, all the rest of it. It's more important than ever that a real attempt is made to broaden the tax base so that you can provide what I was referring to earlier, proper infrastructure support in the country and opportunities for jobs to take young people off the streets and and into productive employment. So that's part of the the importance of the timing. The other thing I'd mention as important for the timing is the um, biodiversity issue and how critical it is to get getting this right when um, so much damage is being done. The um, illegal wildlife trade is estimated to be worth up to $23 billion annually. And uh, you know we've talked about the emerging infectious diseases uh, like Ebola, MERS, SARS, and now COVID-19. And this is something that you know, is, is urgent to deal with. We don't want to find that, um, as it were, dealt with COVID-19, only to find that yet again, there's another zoonotic disease coming our way from a, um, some exotic animals in a wet market in somewhere in Asia. Mm. And I think people are genuinely concerned about the decline and potential disappearance of um, some of the megafauna that are unique in, in, in the region. We have, have had progress. Um, China introduced a ban on wildlife consumption, driven, I think, by concerns about the origin of the COVID-19 virus, the um, famous Wuhan wet market. But um, it's not clear to me, or indeed to anyone, I think, yet, if this is going to be a permanent ban, I very much hope so. Mm-hmm. Certainly, let's hope so. Uh, you, in the report, you have put forward a sort of a, a, a five-point plan, an action plan advocating for reforms and, you know, government actions that might begin to tackle the problem in East Africa. Perhaps you might just talk me through some of those and um, their potential impact in the region. Sure. Well, um, the first recommendation we make is treat crime, corruption, extremism and illicit trade as equal evils threatening national security. And what you need here is a much closer harmonization among the countries of the region of legal penalties so that uh, um, one form of illegal activity is treated equally, robustly, whether it be in Uganda, Kenya, Somalia or whatever. I mean, you... I think there's great merit in looking at something like the Magnitsky-style sanctions to target international wildlife trade. That would be a first-class step in that, that area. What you need also, of course, overall is, um, I mean, the good governance is the best bulwark against international trade and fair and transparent democratic institutions, which increase accountability, are, are critical in in the war against illicit trade. The second measure we've suggested is to adopt comprehensive multi-category anti-illicit trade strategies. And here, not for the first time, Kenya is very much in the vanguard. It has an inter-agency anti-illicit working group, which um, picks up work 
dealt with, um, as the name suggests, by all the agencies operating in Kenya. And this is a very much an approach we would um, welcome and, and encourage other countries to go in for. Does that model include law enforcement agencies, revenue customs? Yes, absolutely. All those things. There are international programs such as illicit tobacco trade protocol, which are a cost-effective and proven way to tackle aspects and categories of illicit trade. And, And it's important that all countries in the region sign up to these measures and implement them, not simply their signature on a piece of paper. In other areas, uh, you've got the uh, fostering regional cooperation and list international support to fight illicit trade. Well, again, I've talked about the importance of the East African community. Uh, a customs union like the EAC is, is only as strong as its uh, weakest link, and it um, should strengthen control at uh, important entry points like Mombasa Port and the smaller airports in the region. Uh, And also the EAC must make harmonization of market standards um, the main priority in advancing integration. The next measure is kind of self-evident, I think, target law enforcement interventions to deter illicit trade and catch the perpetrators. And this is something which individual countries have to enforce. It can't be done internationally. But where these countries are lax in implementing these measures, it's um, open to the international community. And I would say um, it would make sense for them to do so, to make trade and aid deals contingent on their introducing proper um, measures to deter illicit trade. This links in also with the fifth recommendation to introduce surveillance tools to enforce um, marketing and uh, manufacturing regulations to prevent the production and free circulation of illegal products. On the final point, Survivor, I mean, is a big issue there simply resources in terms of inspection in factories and plants in East African countries? I mean, is is it a simple issue of resourcing from that point of view? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a question of resources, of course, but it's also a question of political will. And sometimes political will can be flexible, not to put too crude a, 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 an interpretation on it. And that's why I suggested that, some, that maybe instead of dishing out millions of um, dollars or euros or whatever it is to um, development aid, if you don't look serious about reform, and then why should you be getting such a largesse from the international community? So I think this um, carrot and stick approach may well be what is needed to try and uh, do something which is for the benefit of the region. It's, of course, also a benefit for the international community generally that East Africa shouldn't be a source of extremism, of poverty and instability. So implementing these measures is a win-win. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think you've spelt it out extremely clearly there in terms of the impetus for the international community to, to provide leadership on this and to put in place that type of carrot and stick approach. I think it really does require a change in mindset in terms of making trade or aid arrangements contingent on implementation of international agreements. That would be quite a significant step forward. 
Do you think it's one that the international community is is up for? Do you get the impression that, you know, European countries, United States, etc., are willing to link trade deals, for example, to those types of measures? I think there's a greater willingness now than there has been in recent years. I mean, I think Kenya deserves a lot of support and encouragement for what it's done. And if other countries see that Kenya is being, as it were, patted on the head and given a a chocolate cookie for implementing sensible reforms, maybe they will get their message and see, well, we ought to be doing this as well, because um, it's proved that it can be doable. And uh, we we need to do it as well. And uh, I think that all that has to go hand in glove with anti-corruption measures. And uh, that you, you talked about mindsets. And I think you have to make clear that uh, there's a no-tolerance approach to corruption and the officials who very often are relatively poorly paid, that uh, turning a blind eye to illicit traffic isn't an option that they can take because the penalties will be excessively harsh. Thank you very much, Sir Ivor. I think you have uh, summed up very well what needs to happen at uh, at both an international and a regional level um, to coordinate a response. This report is a hugely important piece of research. It shines a light on the nexus between organized crime activity, extremist and terrorist groups. And I think this report will provide a really important basis for policymakers and governments to tackle this challenge within the countries in East Africa and beyond. So I'd like to thank you very much for joining me, for talking us through the report today, particularly the recommendations. And I would recommend that our listeners log into the Counter Extremism Project website and read this report. It is a really valuable tool. So Sir Ivor, thank you so much again for participating in this podcast today. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. Uh, You mentioned shining a light and of course, They say light is the best disinfectant. So let's hope that's what it proves. Thanks. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website. 